0: Frank Ling
1: and I'm Charles Lee,
0: and you're listening to the Grok Science
1: Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Buddy Levy will join us to discuss Empire of Ice and Stone. So
0: stay tuned for all of this,
1: plus the Grokatron 5000,
0: and our world famous question a week.
1: Coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Rock's Science Show. Well, the heroic and disastrous voyage of the Karluck has been captured in a new book by Mr. Buddy Levy. The book Empire of Ice and Stone. Mr. Levy is the author of more than half a dozen books, including Labyrinth of Ice, The Triumph and Tragic Greeley Polar Expedition, Conquistador. Hernan Cortez, King Montezuma, and many others. He's also the co author of No Barriers, A Blind Man's Journey to Kayak the Grand Canyon, through the new book, Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carlock. Mr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
2: It's my pleasure. Happy to be here.
1: Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book that you've put together here. I'm curious how you became interested in the story and decided to put the book together.
2: A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Labyrinth Vice, and my interest in Arctic exploration is sort of two pronged My father was a Nordic skier, a Nordic ski racer, and he traveled in Scandinavia and was competed in the Olympics in the 50s. And he taught me about the Scandinavian explorers, mainly the Norwegian ones like uh, Fritjof Nansen and 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 then I had the great fortune, uh, you mentioned that book, No Barriers, I had the great fortune to travel to Greenland in 2003 to follow this blind adventurer named Eric Weinmayer, who was competing in an event. While I was there, I was so struck by the drama and magnificence and majesty of Greenland and paddling through these iceberg-strewn fjords. And at that point, I just started reading widely about Arctic exploration, and while I was researching the uh, book, L- Labyrinth of Ice, I came across the story of the car look, and I filed it away for later when I finished uh, Labyrinth, and I'm glad I did, because it ended up being even more dramatic in certain ways.
1: And the history of Arctic Expedition is really one of many different nations, the Canadian Arctic Expedition effort.
2: Right, and in fact, this Canadian Arctic Expedition of 1913, which the book Concerns and often is referred to as the Karlick Expedition, but it was really the Canadian Arctic Expedition and was their first sort of concerted foray. There had been other, England, of course, uh, had been at the fore, and many other northern European nations had been dabbling in Arctic adventure for centuries, but it was Canada's first big shot. And it's somewhat ironic that this particular expedition turned out. Rather poorly, I mean, at least insofar as the Karlick element of it is concerned. I will say that.
1: Were they adequately prepared?
2: Well, that's a great question. So, for a little context, the expedition leader, this Canadian born man named Wilhelmer Stephenson, he had just come back from living in the high Arctic among the Inuit and Inupiat peoples of Alaska and northern Canada. He put together this new expedition rather quickly for something of this magnitude so when he returned from his four years on the ice he immediately met with the uh, american museum of natural history the canadian government and assembled started contacting all of these international scientists from places like france and norway and scotland and he was really somewhat hurried, and at the same time, he was finishing a book manuscript for his previous journey. And he also contacts this famous Newfoundland sea captain named Robert Bartlett and says, you know, and, and then purchases free ships, the Carlick, the Mary Sachs, and the Alaska, and says, okay, everybody meet in Esquimalt, British Columbia, and we're taking off in July of 1913. And it was really a little bit hurried and harried, I will say
1: trying to capture more fame than doing an adequate job of it in a way.
2: Well, that's a great point. And what a lot of people don't know is that so when Stephenson sets these things in motion, he and is telling everyone to meet in Esquimalt, and then from there, the ships are going to move through the Bering Strait and meet up in Nome and in, in Alaska. And Stephenson actually boards a separate, much more comfortable ship, the SS Victoria, and he has on board a secretary of the M- Museum of Natural History, and he's scribbling away and, and dictating and making final edits on this book for his previous expedition that he hopes will be a bestseller so that when he returns from this next one, he'll be rich and famous. And, and I have to say this: Stephenson, a very complicated man, and for all of faults and flaws and detractions, he was really quite genius as a kind of impresario and very persuasive and able to convince entities to finance these really expensive expeditions. But he was, think he had uh, his hands in maybe too many, uh, doing too many, he was multitasking, but there were some frayed ends of things. And so when they take off, so the plan was to take these three ships, buy a bunch of more gear and provisions and hire on Inuit seamstress and hunters in Northern Alaska. And then everyone was going to meet at this small island above the Canadian Yukon called Herschel Island. But he ended up having the wrong men, the wrong gear on the wrong ships. And then the Arctic North's weather has something to say about how everything is going to unfold.
1: That was indeed what happened. They're surrounded by ice floes and they couldn't get out of it.
2: Yeah, it's really remarkable how quickly things I guess, went awry. You know, Captain Bartlett, who uh, had been recommended by uh, the great explorer Robert Peary, as Bartlett was called at the time, the the world's greatest living ice navigator. But within six weeks of departing in mid-August of 1913, this freakish winter storm hits them and the ships are separated. Stephenson at this point is on the car and Bartlett is trying to move through these labyrinthine leads of ice chunks and open water and find a way through to the east to make it to Herschel Island. But they end up being surrounded and encased by flows. And after a time they're sort of cemented in the term of the day was called beset or nipped they're nipped by the ice. And so they can't really go anywhere. And then they're captured essentially inside a mile and a half square of ice and it begins drifting.
1: Is a dire situation and a lot of the adventure of being stuck and then trying to get out of it.
2: Right. And the thing is, this the story ends up being sort of a dual narrative in a lot of ways because if you look at the book's cover, you can pretty much see that the Karlik is in dire straits from the beginning. And it's called the Disastrous and Heroic Karlick Expedition. But what ends up happening, without giving up away the whole book, but what, what, what ends up happening is that as they're drifting along, they're still within striking distance of land, but they're not being able to move under the ship's power. But this flow that they're stuck in is drifting and drifting away from land. And so Stephenson makes a really controversial decision to take a number of the scientists, two of the best Inupiat hunters, and strike for land on what he calls a, a caribou hunt. And he says, you know, I'll be back within 10 days, two weeks. In his letter to Captain Bartlett, he says, if no accident happens. Well, in the Arctic, accidents always happen. And within one day, A massive snowstorm blizzard comes in, strands Stephenson on a small island north of Alaska, and sends the Carlock and its remaining members of 25 or so careening out into the middle of the Arctic Ocean.
1: Incredible. You sort of become interested in this story.
2: Yeah, and in fact, you know, sort of when once Stephenson leaves the ship, and then the Carlock is drifting, sometimes as much as 60 miles a day, that's sort of when the the real drama begins. I cut back and forth in the book between what's happening with Stephenson and what's happening with the members of the Karlach. And so there's a kind of drama there because sometimes you leave the members of the Karlach. But there's sort of an interim period in which the, the Karlach, it actually drifts for four months, four to five months and moves about 500 miles. And so and all the time, this pressure, this incredible ice pressure is beginning to bear on the ship. And there's also this, because they have a library on board, scientists who remain begin reading from this polar library and they realize that there was a, another ship in 1881, the Jeannette, that has traced almost an identical path heading out into the Arctic Ocean towards the Chukchi Sea. The ship's logs from that expedition exploration are really dire indeed, and many, many members died. And so you have the members on this ship trying to do some science while it's still drifting. They create a dredge, and they're taking wind and temperature readings, but they're also anticipating the eventual destruction of the ship and what they're going to do if and when that happens and probably when. How did
1: this all play out after said and done?
2: So I will say that it's really a story of hardship and terror and, and sometimes joy and elation on these frozen polar seas. And it has uh, you know it has shipwreck and mutiny, frostbite and possible murder privation and starvation and, and a dramatic rescue attempt, ultimately, in one of the harshest places on the planet. And there's also a great deal of sacrifice and courage and camaraderie, you know, particularly among Robert Bartlett. But one, one thing to remember from the scientific angle is that Stephenson resurfaces and he doesn't, when he makes land, he ends up, refitting his southern or the northern party of this he was, there were going to be two parties the northern and southern party and he sort of puts the Karlock out of his mind and says you know look nothing can be done for that ship till next summer um when there may be a possibility with ice break up to get to wherever it is but no one except the members of the Carlock know where it is and so he quickly purchases new ships, new equipment, and then some of the members who remain with him, he goes out onto the ice again, and he actually does discover five previously unknown islands in the North American Arctic and claims them for Canada, including Brock, Borden Islands, and he also establishes the outermost fringes of the continental shelf and rules out the existence of a continent north of Alaska, and proves that this place Crocker Land, for which he and others had been searching, doesn't actually exist. So it's sort of ironic because Stephenson ends up being heralded as a great scientist, but he is villainized for his abandonment of the Karluk.
1: You were on the program talked voyage of Dolphus Greeley and, and looking at these two voyages, tragic in many ways, polar expeditions, it's sort of surprising to you that people kept trying with all these tragedies that beset them. What do you think was the impetus for all these exploration of the polar region?
2: Yeah, well that's a great question. And you know, I think it it shifted a bit. So when Greeley, in 1881, when the Greeley expedition or the Lady Franklin Bay expedition set out, there was still a great deal of unknown. Um, no one had reached the North Pole, and people still believed at that time, which is kind of remarkable, that the North Pole was ringed by this great ice ring, and if you could break through it, there was a tropical paradise. And so in the in, in 1880s, it was searched for places that had never been seen or found before. And I think by 1913, uh, around this time, you know, some of these places uh, had been discovered, you know, the Northwest Passage. And and so then it became a shift to the rationale was for scientific inquiry, you know, anthropological studies, ethnological studies, oceanographic studies. But you're right, because there was so much disaster, mortality rates of up to 50% on many of these, I would have been most struck by the fact that no one followed suit of the great Fritjof Nansen, who, as early as the 1890s, had created a ship called the Fram, which had a rounded hull. And so when you would become invariably nipped or beset in the ice this design rounded hull, as the ice encroached and began to uh, surround the ship, it would lift it up onto the ice and not crush it. And then you're just riding along on the flow, but you have all your gear and equipment and, and the relative safety of a ship, including warmth and a roof over your head. And I've always been struck, and I don't really know the answer as to why more of these ventures after that because the Fram remains, you know, it's, it's a museum in Oslo, Norway. I mean, it's like everyone knew, but they kept just purchasing retrofitted whaling vessels and, and going out and sort of hoping for the best. <laughs> it was, it's somewhat uh, unbelievable.
1: Inability to learn from prior mistakes.
2: Yeah, I mean, and there's more to it than that. You know, it's it's, it's possible that the costs were prohibitive because the whaling industry in the early 1910 to 20 was in somewhat of decline. So, whaling vessels, 10, 10 to 20 year old whaling vessels were were inexpensive, and and to specially build these ships was expensive, and so that was part of the reason uh, I suspect that, you know, everyone wasn't just like building the biggest and best new vessels. But still, it's a head scratcher.
1: With the legacy of the expedition, certainly the polar region is continuing to be an area of much contention among various nations. How do you think the legacy of these prior expeditions play into that current climate around the Arctic?
2: Oh, um, you know, within the last couple of years, obviously the ice shelves, the polar ice caps diminishing and the glaciers are re- retreating. But I will say there's a, a really remarkable expedition that took place a couple of years ago on this ship called the Polar Stern. And it was a, it's a massive icebreaker. It brought to bear, I mean, a hundred scientists from I don't even know how many nations all over the world. And it drifted across the arctic and across over the north pole for a year and they they had helicopters on board and the finest best equipment and so they were the, the studies are still coming in from what they're discovering there's some studies that are going to be coming out based on all of their research and so it's called the polar stern and i would highly recommend people interested in it to um, look it up they have a phenomenal website that is interactive and it's state-of-the-art but what we're coming to see is that places like Wrangell Island, where the members of the Carlock were stranded, which in August and later, 1913-14, were really accessible only for couple, three weeks a year because of how much ice was in the region, are now fortunately accessible for six to eight weeks a year, and that's just because of the diminishing ice in the region. And it's having an impact in all sorts of ways, but also on Wrangell Island is the largest polar bear denning ground in the world, and now they survive on seals, and the seals you know, they have to get to them out on the ice. And so it's it's really wreaking havoc on polar bear populations. And it's something that everyone is paying a great deal of attention to now.
1: I'm curious to have any final words regarding your book, Empire of Ice and Stone.
2: I guess I would just say that you learn a lot about what people placed in the direst of situations, what they're made of. And the other thing I'll add is that One thing Stephenson did that was brilliant was that he hired uh, an Inuit family or an Inupiat family from Northern Alaska and a couple of um, hunters. So there was a family of four, including two young girls, a husband and a wife, and then this other young hunter. And they were brought on to sew skin clothing, run the dog sled teams, and also to hunt seals and, and polar bears and walrus. And without them... Probably no one on the karlick would have survived.
1: We were just talking with Mr. Buddy Levy, the new book, Empire of Ice and Stone, The Disastrous and Heroic Voyage of the Carlic. Mr. Levy, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.